Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, an international menopause expert, author, and speaker. I help women go from feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, and struggling to experiencing a new sense of confidence, freedom, and vitality. My own story mirrors that of thousands of women that I have connected with through writing my book, speaking engagements, and coaching. Like you, I felt unprepared, unsupported, and at times dismissed by family, employers, and even doctors. That's why I created this podcast as a place of advocacy, offering facts, resources, and a community where you can become more empowered to take control of your menopause journey. Join us each week as we dive into honest, open, raw conversations on the topics that matter deeply to menopausal midlife women. From our changing bodies to our relationships, to dealing with menopause and aging at work and in society. My mission is to help you to tap into our collective wisdom so you can emerge more powerful, wiser, not just older, thriving and ready to embrace wholeheartedly the next chapter in your life. Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, And today we're going to be talking really about that relationship between stress and what we eat. And I think we're going to have some very interesting revelations in today's interview. I know that I'm going to learn a lot because I have coming as a guest on the show, Dr. Delia McCabe. She is a nutritional neuroscientist and she's also a clinical psychologist and she blends those two together to bring really insightful understanding around the aspects of stress and resiliency to stress and how our diet plays a role in that. Welcome to the show, Delia. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you and I connected on LinkedIn and I just loved the work you're doing and that it's so important to understand more about these areas of nutrients and stress. And in particular, I know one of your areas is differences between men and women. But maybe we'll take it back a step and talk a little bit about what inspired you to become interested in this area of stress and nutrition. It's a good question because I actually started becoming curious about this more than two decades ago. So that really does age me a little But (laughs) I was busy doing my master's in clinical psych and I was looking at achievement among smart school children and underachievement. And I discovered that my experimental group was really a group of children who loved junk food and they could have done really well at school and they were doing poorly. Whereas my control group, the children who were doing well at school, didn't love junk food. And it was a really clear distinction for me. So I basically stepped away from the conventional talking cure, if I can put it that way, to investigate nutritional neuroscience. And that's been my fascination, you know, for for the last two decades, because when I realized that it was really, really much more challenging to speak to a malnourished brain and get it to make changes and, you know, develop new habits and have different ways of thinking, I really knew that I needed to focus on what the brain needs to function optimally. And so that was a huge epiphany for me. And then fast forward to a point in my life where I felt really stressed and stretched as a mum, a working mum. And I decided to investigate nutrition and stress because I saw all these women around me swallowing dietary supplements, complaining about not being able to sleep, putting on weight. And I thought, what's really underpinning all of this? And that's when I did a deep dive into female stress. Clarissa. And so that's, yeah, that's what brought me to it, kind of like a personal decision. That's so often true, isn't it? It's what we experience ourselves, but then apply the science to help us to understand. Absolutely. There's a a funny saying among researchers, they say there isn't anything like research, there's only me search. And (laughs) I think that's true. I think it is true. I think that's often where we start with our own hypothesis of what is going on. Yes. And I think it's a good place to start from because you've got a lot of intimate knowledge. And, you know, people have said, why the female stressed brain? And I said, because I understand it. I don't understand the male stressed brain. No. And I mean, talk a little bit about female stress. It is different, isn't it, to male stress in some ways? It is different. And I think I just need to preface 
what I'm going to say now because the male and the female brain are more similar than different. That's the first thing to say. But the second thing for people to keep in mind is that the differences are really noticeable because the differences really act out or we see them in our behavior, you know, the way we, we live our lives. And obviously hormones are part of that and that's your area of expertise. But I think just, just to look at the, the effect of stress on the female brain, there are a few reasons why female stress is different to male stress. And the first one is that we have a lot more psychosocial challenges than men do. And that's simply because of the role that we play in society. You know, we, we mothers, we carers for elderly parents often as we get older and we become, you know, mothers of teenagers, which are, which is challenging. You know, we often have partners that we do a lot of caretaking for as well. <laughs> you know, the male and female domestic chore situation has still not been solved. You know, we work outside the home. Many of us have been working inside the home because of COVID. So we've got all of those challenges, you know, expected to step up in a work environment and still keep all of our family obligations going then we also have a very much more active limbic system now the limbic system is the part of the brain that basically regulates our emotions and women seem to have a much more tightly connected limbic system versus the male brain and i think that's kind of like self-evident we needed to have much more of an intuitive understanding of what our children were wanting from us when they were pre-verbal you know we have a, a more of a bonding with our children in relation to feeding them, you know, from our own bodies. And so there are a number of reasons for that very tightly connected limbic system. And then we also have our hormones that fluctuate regularly throughout the month. And when we get to peri and menopause, as you very well know, then we have even more of a fluctuation. And those fluctuating hormones impact neurotransmitters. So when we become very stressed, that impacts not just neurotransmitter synthesis, but it also impacts hormonal or hormone synthesis. And then we end up having a perfect storm of too much cortisol, not enough hormones when we need them, challenges with synthesis of neurotransmitters that allow us to be calm and relaxed and sleep. So those are the three main areas that women differ from men in relation to stress. And because we do live in a very complex society, often those psychosocial stresses just exacerbate the other two areas where we're vulnerable. Yeah, and that was a fantastic, really, description of, although, as you say, we are the same and obviously we have the same stress responses, we have additional considerations, which I think, if you're listening to this, makes you think about how are you living your life? How are you managing your emotions? And how do we actually navigate through peri to postmenopause very differently than we might have done when we were younger. But you, you're right, Delia, we have this immense ability to connect on a deep emotional level, haven't we, which can work both for us and against us as respect to the limbic system. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you say, it can work for us and against us. It's like our Achilles heel because it allows us to be very much more connected to other people. It allows us to be intuitive. It allows us to be proactive when we see people you know who need care and attention but when we get very stressed we actually overreact in those areas so one of the examples i often give women is that you know we're walking down the street and we see a friend and the friend doesn't wave back when we wave and so we take that very personally and we ruminate on that you know what have we done wrong is our friend cranky with us and so on whereas the male brain will go oh well, they're probably just busy you know they've got something else on their mind the female brain sees into situations and we ruminate more because of that, that limbic system that's so sensitive. So yes, as you said, spot on. It can serve us, but it can also be a challenge when we become really stressed and we think too much and see too much into something. Yes. And then you're overlaying, as you said, onto that hormones. I mean, I know as that's kind of an area that's obviously very close to my heart that our hormones are so interconnected. And maybe we touch a little bit about this because one of the things I hear a lot is, oh, it's it's my sex hormones, it's estrogen, progesterone. But the system doesn't quite work like that. I mean, stress has a massive impact on our sex hormones, which you touched a tiny bit on in the, in the introductory part there. Tell me a bit more about that, Delia, and for the listeners to understand a little bit about how much connection there is between one hormone and another. I think the challenge is that, that, you know, we talk about estrogen, we talk about progesterone, we understand that they fluctuate during the month and your expertise is how they start fluctuating a lot 
during peri and menopause. But I think a lot of women are not aware of the fact that estrogen is linked to serotonin and progesterone is linked to GABA. Now, let's just discuss serotonin and estrogen for a moment. Serotonin is the hormone that allows us to, or the neurotransmitter, sorry, that allows us to feel safe and secure. It regulates our appetite. Some researchers have a funny way of describing serotonin in that serotonin is involved in everything but responsible for nothing. And that's kind of like the role of serotonin because we now know that 80% of serotonin is actually synthesized in the gut, which we call peripheral serotonin. And the other percentage of serotonin, we're not exactly precisely sure about exactly the percentage, is actually synthesized in the brain. And it is different to gut synthesized serotonin. But regardless, serotonin has a huge role to play in our well in our well-being. And serotonin, there are 14 different serotonin receptors in the brain. Some of them code for anxiolytic action, which means they reduce anxiety, and some of them code for angiogenic action, which means they increase anxiety, which is why some people have a really bad reaction to serotonin um, reuptake inhibitors, that, that form of antidepressant, because we don't know what our ratio is. So you can take an antidepressant and then you don't know, maybe you have more anxiolytic receptors and so then you actually become more anxious using using an antidepressant. But I'm digressing a little. But I think I'm, I'm getting the point across that when our estrogen fluctuates, so does our serotonin synthesis. And so we might, may find ourselves during the month feeling really irritable, unable to sleep, unable to feel settled and also much more hungry than normal because serotonin also regulates our appetite. So when when you hear women say, and I'm sure you hear this often, Clarissa, they say to you, you know, the appetite feels out of control. They just want to eat everything that they see. And some women say they lose their appetite, but unfortunately, it's mostly the case of wanting to eat everything. <laughs> That's one of the reasons because of the serotonin imbalance. And the sugar cravings that then so often accompany that. Yes. And one of the reasons that sugar cravings and processed food cravings accompany this is because this is where psychology steps in a little bit, because we've learned over time that when we consume very sweet foods, the stress response, actually the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access response is reduced slightly. So we actually end up feeling a little bit less stressed when we eat something that is highly processed because that that highly processed food actually causes something which we call the synthesis of endogenous opioids. That means that it actually allows the body to make its own opioids so we just feel calm and relaxed for a little bit. And from a psychological perspective, we then learn, aha, that processed food will help me feel a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's not surprising that when we feel a bit low, we often reach for that chocolate bar. It's not at all surprising because the chocolate supplies a whole lot of things to us. It gives us a little bit of a dopamine hit, which is a little bit of joy. Then it lowers that stress response. And also it gives us some magnesium, <laughs> which helps us lower our stress response too. And, you know, we're told that dark chocolate is good for us, so why not have a piece of it? And I definitely don't object to that, but I don't want us to use it as medicine because over a long period of time, obviously, you know, we're not dealing with the real issue, which is these hormones and, and the serotonin challenge, you know, not being addressed. The other thing, of course, is if, a, if our digestive system isn't working optimally, then the serotonin that needs to be synthesized in our gut isn't being synthesized optimally. And that then leaves us with an ongoing problem, not just a problem when our estrogen fluctuates. So that's kind of like a bit of a separate topic in relation to serotonin. But in relation to progesterone, sorry, Clis. No, go, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yes, I was just thinking. Yes, that is, that is, you know, a prime example of how integrated our system is. That we are not little things in separate buckets. But just in in what Delia was saying there, in just what you put forward is, you know, serotonin is made in the gut, and the estrogen and, and serotonin are intimately linked and it all goes to being like a whole system needs to work not just bits of it need to work absolutely and i think what's happened with allopathic medicine although it's you know made leaps and bounds in, in keeping us alive and, and helping us survive use challenges it hasn't looked at us as part or, or should i say it hasn't looked at all the parts as being an interconnected whole because we've got specialists in every area and i so i think people forget you know that you can't actually separate any of these we can examine them separately but then we have to look at where they interact and that's the challenge and i think we lose that in some of the conversations we have about health because we'll say okay let's examine hormones but then 
We also have to examine stress and then we have to examine gut as we just have. And, you know, so we go. But in relation to progesterone, this is also interesting because progesterone is related to GABA and GABA is, you know, stands for gamma amino butyric acid, which is a soothing neurotransmitter. It's the opposite of excitation. So it works in concert with glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So when our progesterone's out of whack, what happens is that we cannot synthesize enough GABA or otherwise we synthesize too much and we feel too relaxed and too calm. But that generally isn't the case unless women are pregnant when there's a lot of progesterone circulating. So what happens when women don't have enough progesterone? They get into bed at night and they have, you know, they, they may not be having enough serotonin, but they don't have enough GABA either. So now they feel tired, but they feel wired. They can't relax. They can't, they can't slow down. They can't just be. So, you know, to tell a woman who doesn't have enough GABA circulating to sit down and meditate or to just be calm and, you know, be mindful is very challenging because her brain isn't cooperating with what she knows will be helpful, but she doesn't have that neurotransmitter being synthesized. So that's where the progesterone GABA relationship is really important to examine. And I know that when you, you know, you work with women, that's part of what you do is to get that progesterone working properly and being synthesized. So then the GABA can step in and they can feel calm and, and, you know, calm, cool and collected, which is what we all want to feel. And I think that, that you've just very succinctly there explained why exactly as you said it's so hard when someone who maybe doesn't have this understanding of the interplay is going around telling people to be calm and I've stood in rooms of women and women say I can't meditate I just can't do it you know and they walk away and because particularly this aspect isn't working and of course progesterone and cortisol have a relationship as well don't they so yeah talk a bit about that they do have a relationship. And, and the challenge is that when a woman's cortisol is really, really high, well, let's just step back for a moment, Clarissa, because I think there are a few things that I just want to, to make clear. The first thing is that stress costs us nutritionally. Okay, so let's just think about this. Nutrients are used to synthesize adrenaline, which is the first flush of that stress response. You know, when we think there's a tiger in the bushes, adrenaline needs to be synthesized so that we can get glucose into our muscles so that we can run away from the tiger. That's the first thing that happens. Adrenaline gets synthesized and we need nutrients to create to create adrenaline. So that's number one. The second thing is the longer the tiger chases you, which you know in today's world is a psychological chasing, that adrenaline synthesis cannot be sustained because it was only meant to last for between 30 to 60 seconds because the tiger either caught you and you didn't need the response anymore, or otherwise you got away from the target and you didn't need that, you know, you didn't need any more adrenaline synthesis. But today, cortisol then becomes the next step, and that's a slow burn hormone. And so it also costs from a nutritional perspective. So this is one of the reasons why when people are very stressed, they feel exhausted. The body's primary goal is to keep you alive. And so adrenaline and cortisol synthesis will take precedence over the, the nutrients that are required to produce energy. So you'll hear women say, I'm so exhausted. I can't lift my body off the couch. I know I need to exercise, but I don't have the energy to do that. And that's because all of the nutrients are now being funneled into adrenaline and cortisol production. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. And I think if you add on top of that, that as we go through perimenopause and intermenopause, the adrenals are taking up the role of the ovaries in producing progesterone and estrogen. So we've got a double whammy going on there that all your nutrients, everything is being pulled away to keep you safe in inverted commas and your poor old sex hormones don't get a look in because your adrenals don't have time to do that job in a, in a layman's term. Absolutely. That's exactly what happens because if your system is operating the way it should be operating, the way, you know, nature evolved for us to operate, then what happens, as you said, the adrenal glands start taking over some of the hormone synthesis that the ovaries were doing, you know, synthesizing. So then what happens is that there's a slow downshift of estrogen and progesterone production. But if the adrenals are exhausted, then they can't do that job. So I recommend to women who are in their early 30s, I say to them, look, manage your stress, become stress resilient, because if you don't, your perimenopause and your menopause is going to be very much more challenging 
then what it will be is if your adrenal glands are healthy. And, you know, they don't always understand that until I show them the cascade and then they go, oh my goodness, I understand how it all fits together. So as you say, those poor exhausted adrenal glands can't help the body cope with that change in hormone production because they are just too shattered. Yeah. And we do actually have the biological, physiological capability to produce maintenance levels of estrogen and progesterone, knowing that they do lots of other roles in the body beyond the reproductive role. And But if they can't do that, that's when we're seeing this huge deficiency. And as you said, the exhaustion and not just the symptoms that we see in the perimenopause, which are often about imbalances between estrogen and progesterone, but this sheer exhaustion, as you said, because cortisol and adrenaline are running the show. Absolutely. And I think that's why you're seeing so many more clients now, because you have so many more women who've been running on empty for two decades and it's just getting worse and worse because society isn't becoming less complex, it's becoming more complex. And so when these women arrive at you, you know, to, to, to use your services, they're already shattered because of this huge drain from adrenaline and cortisol. And then the other thing in terms of, you know, hormone production, hormones also need nutrients to be synthesized. So women can be deficient in iron, they can be deficient in zinc and magnesium, which all happens because of ongoing adrenaline and cortisol synthesis. And then they can't actually synthesize the hormones that they should be able to synthesize. So then there's this vicious cycle, this downward cycle, where this deficiency of nutrients is causing this huge ongoing domino effect of just catastrophe. And that's when you lead to what's called adrenal fatigue, and it's more of a breakdown, isn't it, of the HPA axis? It's not, isn't the adrenals in themselves are still there. They just can't do their, their job. And you can't respond to stress like you would before. You don't have even the fight and flight, do you? You're just drained. You don't. You're just completely drained. And I, I, lots, of, lots of people call that burnout. And burnout used to be a term that, that was only used in relation to a work environment. But I think today we, we know that burnout is just the general feeling of being exhausted, burning the candle at both ends from a work perspective and from a general life perspective where you've actually just burnt yourself out. And I think something else which is interesting and which a lot of people don't know, Clarissa, so you know we've got the central nervous system, which is basically divided into the sympathetic nervous system, which I call the stress nervous system. And we've got the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest nervous system. Now, this was interesting when I discovered this. And when I show this to women, they go, wow, that's interesting. Because the sympathetic nervous system is actually more, and let me just choose the word now, because when I have a slide which shows this perfectly. But if I'm you know, speaking about this, it's a little different. So if we think about the sympathetic nervous system, it's actually a little bit more of a delicate nervous system versus the parasympathetic nervous system. Sorry, I'm saying it the wrong way. I'm, I'm seeing it on my slide and I'm battling to articulate it. The parasympathetic nervous system is actually more delicate than the sympathetic nervous system because the parasympathetic nervous system was supposed to be used a lot more frequently versus the sympathetic nervous system. So what happens is that the sympathetic nervous system is actually used so much more today that it actually burns out because it isn't capable of coping with all of the stress, all of the cortisol, all of this ongoing stretching that we do, and the parasympathetic nervous system, which was meant to be used a lot more for us to be relaxed and calm, ends up actually also battling because it needs to be activated and we've forgotten how to activate it. So, you know, one of the things I say to women is what you really need to do is laugh a lot. And they say, laugh, what's to laugh about? I said, find things to laugh about because when you laugh, your parasympathetic nervous system has to kick in. It cannot be active or your sympathetic nervous system cannot be active when you're laughing. Your parasympathetic system naturally steps in. Yeah. And I love that, you know, sort of like have a really good laugh at anything or even laughter yoga, where you just make yourself laugh, even if it's a bit sort of fake it till you make it. <laughs> and then you're laughing away. <laughs> it's the truth because you actually just feed that laughter. Um, we've got a few comedians that we watch regularly, and they just make us laugh. And I've got a friend every day, she sends me a few memes that are really funny, and I do the same for her. And we just, you know, laugh about that because it's something that we actually need to focus on because that parasympathetic nervous system is really a nervous system that is not being activated enough. So it actually, this is where the psychology of the whole stress thing comes in, Clarissa, because if we're continuously stressed, 
and we're continuously alert and we're continuously vigilant for the next problem coming up. What happens is we build neural pathways to ensure that we stay that way. Of course, because that's what the messages we're being sending to the system. You need to be alert at all times, irrespective of whether it's an email or something on the TV or whatever. There's no, and, and that's the groove we're in. And I'd say that a lot of women, with no disrespect, you tell, you can tell how wired they are. They're so tense and it shows physically in the way they speak. Everything is about like being on constant hyper all the time. And there's nothing, there's nothing else. They don't know how to wind down and relax. And when they do go on holiday, they just crash at the best. Absolutely, because adrenaline is actually keeping them going and they're limping along with adrenaline and dopamine you know, synthesis all the time. I think the other thing that happens is that, that they start feeling guilty if they have any downtime because they feel that they've got to you know, keep going to keep on top of everything. And I kind of blame the media for this in a way because I think women have been told for so long that they can have everything. You know, you can have it all. And I think our health and our mental state is proving that this is not true. You can't actually have everything. You have to choose. You can't have a perfect home with everything in its place and do perfect entertaining and have a perfect body and have perfect children and a perfect marriage and a perfect career. It's just not possible because any person trying to do that will, guess what, burn out. And I think this image that some women have and that they believe they need to live up to is really dangerous because it's not possible to do that. Yeah, and especially so as you go into perimenopause when your hormones do exactly what they're meant to do because that is the stage of life and suddenly you're suddenly faced with a body that cannot, it just cannot do it. And of course, we know estrogen and progesterone also playing huge roles, as you said, in other neurotransmitters. They're playing massive role in our whole brain, in our brain and in our emotions. And we're just left kind of crashed. And that's why so many women feel so out of sync, quite frankly, when we go through this, this change. Absolutely. I think the other thing that happens, it also coincides with the time when maybe children are stepping out into the world and they don't need their mothers as much as they needed them before. And that can also leave women feeling, you know, very vulnerable because now part of their role and their existence is now being changed. A lot of women also find that they may be in relationships that they're not happy with and they have to make a change there. Maybe there's also career changes and they could have aging parents. So there are quite a few things that could be happening at the same time as this hormonal challenge. And so women are often left feeling, you know, who are they? And so they have this crisis. And I'm, I'm sure you deal with that with the women that come to you for, for assistance. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the psychosocial, as we said, that other component coming in combination with the physiological change. We've mentioned nutrients all the way along the journey here, Delia. <laughs> Talk a lot about this whole relationship between stress and nutritional deficiencies, which you made some small reference to earlier. I think, you know, as I said earlier, that stress is really expensive from a nutritional perspective because adrenaline will be synthesized and cortisol will be synthesized as the next step. And they use nutrients. So they use B nutrients, they use zinc magnesium. These are nutrients that are also required to make the neurotransmitters, as we've discussed, and they also require to generate energy. So if there is nutrient deficiencies in our diet, we're going to feel it on every single one of those levels. We're going to feel it in brain function. You know, the brain will feel foggy and you won't be able to think clearly. Um, you're going to feel it in relation to an inability to sleep as well. You're going to be feeling it in relation to a lack of energy, just that pure down exhaustion. Something else that happens, which is called decision fatigue, which generally happens towards the end of the day when we've used up an enormous amount of brain or cognitive energy and we just can't think straight anymore. And women are having that experience for you know the whole day because when the brain run, runs short on, on energy, it does one of two things. It either makes no decision, so you feel like, I can't make any decision. And there will definitely be women listening to this who will go, I definitely identify with that. It's like my brain can't decide. 
And the other thing that the brain does, it will go for a knee-jerk reaction. It will just do a habitual response, and that's why. You know, if, if a woman is maybe trying to lose weight and so she'll go the whole day and she'll eat really well, but then she'll come to the end of the day, walk into the house, be exhausted and just reach for that box of brownies because that's a habitual response. The brain just doesn't have the energy to decide to make a better decision, should I put it that way. So this lack of nutrients stretches across the whole of our existence because nutrients underpin everything that we do, this energy production, the hormone production, synthesis of neurotransmitters. And then, of course, what happens sometimes women look into the mirror and they go, I've aged. I've aged you know, so quickly because those nutrients are also used to make things like collagen and elastin to keep us young. So there's this huge challenge with a lack of nutrients. And women suffer more from a nutrient deficiency than men do when the nutrient deficiency starts because of all these hormonal requirements, you know, for, for nutrients to, to be able to synthesize hormones. Yeah, of course, because, yeah, we've got extra demands on our body, not just through our monthly cycle, but also as we lose or our hormones production is being switched from one part of the body to other, we need different nutrients. We just need to be nutritionally well, don't we? We do. And there's something else that I want to mention, which a lot of women don't know. And when I work with women, this is one of the things that I suggest that they do, is they be assessed to see whether they have a certain genetic polymorphism. And women can live for decades without knowing they have this polymorphism, because when you stressed, your body needs more nutrients, as, as we've just discussed. And this polymorphism relates to folate. So it's a methyl enzyme that is required to convert the folate from the food that we eat into the active form. And if you have an anomaly on the gene, the MTHFR gene, then your body cannot do that conversion optimally. So you need to use an activated form of folate and B12 and B6 because they're also affected by this genetic anomaly. And what happens when women have this anomaly is that they're much more prone to anxiety and depression, Clarissa. So I always suggest that women have this, have an assessment done to see if they have one of these polymorphisms. There are three parts of, of the gene that can be affected. Some women only have one of three, some have two of three, and some have three of three. But regardless, they then need an activated form of folate and of B12 and B6. And immediately, well, within a couple of days, they start feeling better because now their body can actually use vitamin B9, also called folic acid, much more efficiently because they've got the activated form of that. So that's something else just to keep in mind at the back of, at the back of our mind. It just makes you, when you say that, how important two things come to mind. Firstly, that you really know your own body and that you, you are taking, if you're feeling these things, that you don't reach just for the pill to soothe it, but you understand more. And I think that's a big onus on women to ask those questions, but to get the support they need to really understand. And the second is just how really basic but vital nutrients are playing such an essential role, but they're ones that we're so easily deficient in. Zinc, magnesium, B vitamins, and as you say, for some women, this form of folate. It's really, really important and you spot on. And it's actually 22% of the population they estimate could have this genetic anomaly. So I send all the women that I work with to have this gene, to be assessed for this gene, because it's extremely important to know whether that's the case. And it's really a simple solution. You just have the activated form of it and you feel a whole lot better. And, you know, the funny thing about this gene is that I was writing about it in my first book and I thought, oh, I wonder if I've got that gene. So I went off to, to my doctor and she's really wonderful. She's a functional doctor and she checks hormones and everything. And she tested and she came back and she said, yeah, you've got two of the polymorphisms. And I said, wow, that's so interesting. And now when I look back, I can see that there have been dips in my life where I have felt, you know, pretty depressed and, and pretty distressed. And I always thought it was the environment. And obviously the environment has a role to play. You know, everything is in context. But now when I look back at it, I go, oh my goodness, if only I'd known that I had this challenge. And then, of course, I sent my children off for the tests, and they, of course, also have um, the, the anomalies. And now we all use the activated form of the bees, of those bees, and we just feel, you know, so much better. So it was a funny story that I only checked it out when I was writing about it. 
<laughs> isn't that always the case that we start to get more interested in something that that leads us there? That's a great story, but also I think an important message because feeling low, and I think as women we do often feel that not just when we're in perimenopause, but many times, even when we're older as well, but on the other side, we can have real periods and of feeling maybe not depressed in a in a clinical sense but but just low and and struggling a bit on the on getting our moods into a positive space so i think that's a vital piece of information that that women need to know yeah look i think it's extremely important it's a pleasure and it, you know as i said it was really funny because then i told my mum to go and be tested and i knew she'd have it because i had it and she did and then she said oh so depression can run in families i said yeah it can run in families for a number of reasons one of them being that gene so it was a very important discussion but i think the other thing you know to discuss here as as i've touched on is anxiety and depression because when we experience chronic stress. This is stress that goes on for weeks and months and often years. There are actually structural changes that happen in the brain and we become a lot more vulnerable to suffering from anxiety and depression simply because the limbic system becomes challenged to modulate our emotions. So that means if something happens that really is, is quite traumatic or really stretches us, instead of bouncing back and being resilient, which would be the case from a, a cognitive perspective if we weren't chronically stressed, the limbic system really battles to do that. And so women will find themselves feeling anxious, feeling depressed, feeling like they can't cope, feeling useless, all those feelings that come along with anxiety and depression. And it's actually because of the changes that take place you know, from a structural perspective within the architecture of the brain, which is a really sobering thought. Yeah. I mean, I'm just sitting there thinking, yes, that's huge. That And that's all coming from chronic stress, isn't it? It is. It really is. And so finding a way to, I don't like using the word manage because manage sounds a little bit like it's there, you accept it, and it's always going to be there. And in a sense, we know that stress is always going to be there. But I think I would prefer people to think about becoming stress resilient so that whatever comes across our path, we, you know, we can step up and we can manage it. And we can do that if we just have a few shifts in, in the way we think about stress and the way we make decisions in our lives as women. That needs to be part of the process because we don't want those structural changes to take place because the neuroplasticity of the brain is a wonderful thing, but that's the dark side of neuroplasticity, that the brain can change and actually leave us more vulnerable. And then to change it back again is really, really hard because you don't override a neural pathway ever. You have to create a new one. Yes. That, if anybody's listening really intently on that, is the big one. You cannot just do something. You have to. And that means that you have to work at building that new one, don't you, Delia, on, on a number of different levels? You do. You have to work on it on a number of different levels. And that's where your nutrition needs to be optimal. That's where you really need to get the psychology of stress resilience under control and really understand how to make behavior change. And also, you need to understand that neurological process, how challenging it's going to be. So for me, prevention is a lot better and becoming stress resilient. Because once you start falling into that anxiety and depression whirlpool, it's a lot harder to pull yourself out of that just because your brain is no longer really on your side in the same way it was before. Exactly. And that and that's why a lot of people go and do some short workshop or course and you come back and say, well, that didn't work for me because you're actually having to really work on retraining the brain. And that takes weeks and months really until you can build. And you have to keep doing the same things over and over in many ways to train the brain to look differently, which of course is is one of the aspects that I work on with people is retraining the brain, following the work of psychologists like Rick Hansen, and you're training the brain, but it takes time. It doesn't happen quickly. People lose interest because they think it's going to be a quick fix. And so you're right. It, having a better foundation is a much better way to start the process. And you're right, doing that in your 30s, not when you're faced with all the, the crises the cha hormonal changes and neural pathways that don't serve you when you're in your late 40s. Spot on, Clarissa, spot on. And I think if we can get more women to understand this and to work with their neurology 
and make decisions that really serve them over the long, the long period of their, of their lives, not just quick fixes, then they'll have a much better chance of really stepping into that change of peri and, and, and menopause and really hold their power and be able to hold their space well. But it's really hard to do that when you're exhausted, when you don't feel like you're on, on top of any game, you're watching your body change, and there doesn't seem to be anything positive about the new chapter you're stepping into. So I know that you help women with that, and it's phenomenal that you can do that because they really do need that capacity to see the change as a positive, not as a negative. And, you know, that prevention would make it so much better for them and, and, and more of an adventure than kind of like something that they have to force themselves to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it when you listen to you talk, I mean, I mean, HRT can be fantastic, but without the, and I love your view because a lot of that's being advocated without the underpinning of the management of stress and the nutritional building blocks. So that becomes just another allopathic patch to put on, to put it as in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what women do. And I mean, I think when women are really in a crisis, they want a very quick solution. So, you know, the doctor will say, look, I'll give you a little bit of um, an anxiolytic and you'll feel better. And they do. They take the anxiolytic and they can cope. But as you say, it's just a Band-Aid. It's not solving the whole problem. And so HRT can be exactly that, also a Band-Aid, because they'll feel better, but they're not addressing the real things because they're not changing the way they're making decisions. They're not learning to say no. They're not looking at their relationships really carefully. They're not looking at codependency. They're not looking at decisions they're making and behaviors that they're engaging in that are not supporting them over the long term. So they're really not serving themselves in, in, in a holistic way. They're only looking at a short-term solution. Yeah, so I think there there is certainly so much that needs to be done in terms of making sure that we start earlier, that we have a good nutritional base to be able to make the necessary hormones, even when things are fluctuating and changing, and to be able to be more resilient to stress by having very different pathways of res- responding to the stresses we meet in life. Yeah, I think when women understand that they actually have to think carefully about what they take on, you know, they actually need to look at the situations that they're faced with and say, okay, I can actually cope with this. It's not going to stretch me. I used to give in-person workshops when COVID didn't exist. (laughs) And one of the things I used to say to women, and they would look at me, you know, in a very startled way, I would say to them, adrenal fatigue is actually a personality disorder. And they'd go, what are you talking about? It's my body that feels bad. And I said, yeah, but it's your brain that didn't allow you to slow down and rest when you felt exhausted. And they go, oh, yeah, that's true. Because they kept on pushing themselves. You know, they were exhausted. They didn't feel good. They knew that they were tired, but they said, I'll just do one more thing, just one more thing, and I'll be fine. And so I said, that's a personality disorder. That's, you didn't listen to your body when it was saying to you, hold on, I'm really, really tired now. And then we talk about how personality drives these kind of behaviors that really set us up for failure. Yeah, exactly. And I think that if that was a takeaway, you know, that's a harsh message, but it's a very true one. <laughs> yeah. And look, when I say disorder, I say that with all the, the compassion and grace of a person who has had adrenal exhaustion. You know, it's a comment based on personal experience. So I know what it's like to push beyond that boundary of, of being exhausted. And so I've learned I don't want to keep on doing that because, you know, that's like banging your head against the wall. And so now I know how not to allow that to happen. And I know the steps that I need to take to stop that because my personality is a lot harder to change in my behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. I think I think you and I could talk about this all day actually because we share that interest around the brain and hormones and nutrition. If you had to leave the listeners with one key message, what would that be? Okay, that's a hard one, Clarissa, but I think I'm going to leave them with something that we actually haven't addressed, but it is it underpins a lot of the discussion about nutrition, and that is to keep blood glucose stable. And the reason for doing that is there are a number of reasons, but the first reason and what happens naturally when you eat a really good nutrient-dense diet filled with variety is that your blood glucose stays stable. And when your blood glucose stays stable, 
you are automatically getting all the nutrients that you need. That's the first thing. But the second thing that happens is you're not releasing stress hormones when your blood glucose dips, which is a natural response to when your blood glucose dips because your brain is sending a message to your body, find food quickly because I have no way to store energy in the brain. Find food quickly. And the way I can get you to find food quickly is to raise your adrenaline. So when we keep blood glucose stable, we make sure that we don't get that dip in blood glucose that raises adrenaline. The second thing that happens, which is really an amazing thing, when we keep our blood glucose stable, our weight is also stable because when blood glucose dips and rises and dips and rises very quickly over a period of time, the body gets a message that the blood glucose isn't stable and so that means it needs to store any excess carbohydrates as fat. So this is how stress can make us put on weight because when we're very stressed, our blood glucose goes up and down, up and down, and we also choose the wrong kinds of foods. And so we end up putting on weight because of that biochemical reaction. So when we keep our blood glucose stable, we're getting all the nutrients that we need and we're making sure we're not having that stress response and we're keeping our weight stable. So there are a number of really positive things that come with keeping blood glucose stable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can only say that I totally, totally agree with you there. That is why you hear so many people out in the world and so many of my guests talking about plant-based diets, high in complex you know, carbohydrates, rich in fiber, because you're making your blood glucose levels stable. And whereas processed food and junk food did exactly what Delia said earlier, which is lots of glucose into the system to keep you able to run or fight whatever it is you're going to do in that stress moment. Correct. And then just one more thing to mention, something else that helps our blood glucose stay stable is making sure we're consuming the right kinds of essential fats. And these fats are really amazing because when we consume the right kind of these essential fats, they keep blood glucose stable, but they also do a lot of other things. They switch on hormones that allow the body to burn fat and switch off hormones that, that encourage the body to store fat. So they also keep the brain functioning really well because 20% of the 60% of the dry weight of the brain is made up or needs to be made up of essential fats. And when we have enough of them, we can synthesize neurotransmitters optimally. And so there's a huge, beautiful, positive spin-on effect of consuming the right essential fats. So that's also critical for hormone um, synthesis, which you well know, and for brain function and mood stability and blood glucose stability. And I think just points yet again to the importance of nutrition in this whole big picture. And those fats are Omega-3s, omega-9s, and the ratio of omega-3. Omega-3. Yeah. It's omega-3 and omega-6. Six. six. And, yeah, 3 and 6. Omega-9 is oleic acid, and that's actually um, a monounsaturated fat, which the body can make. But the body cannot make omega-3 and omega-6, and they are critically important for brain function. And the ratio, interestingly, should be in the favor of omega-3, which is used in the most highly metabolic, metabolically active organs, which is the brain, the heart, the adrenal glands, and our reproductive organs. So yeah, all of which are highly involved in, in, in change a lot in perimenopause. <laughs> Absolutely. So that, that's where the essential fats become, become really critically important. So I just wanted to mention them because they're very much, in, very important in, in terms of our optimal diet and stress resilience. They are. So again, the importance of diets in stress resilience and the role of, of stress hormones in how we feel through perimenopause is so important. Delia, I want to thank you for bringing such a lot of in-depth knowledge, science and, and practical wisdom to this conversation. It's often hard for women to understand who are being told it's all just my hormones, but we know how important that stress and nutrition access is. How can people get in touch with you, Delia, and find out more about the work that you do or work with you? Anyone can have a look for me on my blog, which is www.lby.life, which stands for Lighter, Brighter You. 
And I use the same name on Instagram where I put interesting things about the brain and about the food that I make, which is to support stress resiliency. And they can find me on Facebook as well. And on my blog, I've got a section where people can contact me if they want to work with me. I do have some an online course that I'm busy testing at the moment. And I'd be delighted to answer any questions that anybody sends to me and to chat to chat somewhere on social media. That's wonderful, Delia. We'll put all that into the show notes so people can reach out and just get so much more from our life, I think, by taking action around stress and, and the particularly stress and nutrition together. Thank you, Delia, for coming on and sharing this with us. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Clarissa. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have loved or liked this episode, then I would be deeply grateful if you would head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. My mission is to reach as many women as possible, menopausal midlife women who may be feeling alone and asking questions. Why do I feel this way? Thriving Through Menopause is all about a community and our collective wisdom. You matter to me. Your feedback, opinions and stories matter to me. And I would love to hear from you. So drop me an email, clarissa at clarissachristensen.com. I genuinely want your feedback and your ideas on the topics that you would like to hear more of on this podcast. And if you are a woman who feels that they are struggling alone through menopause and you need more support, pop over to my website, clarissachristensen.com. You can find free resources, And you can book a one-to-one discovery call with me. Let's start conversation. Thank you once again for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corian's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corian.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corian.com. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.